So I want to speak to you this morning on this subject of hope and that amazing passage that Connor uh, read for us a few moments ago. And I want, in your mind's eye, perhaps, to think of a situation that was hopeless. Think of a situation in your life when you felt hopeless. Maybe you can see the room. Maybe you can see the people. Maybe you can see the faces when you were in that particular situation. A situation that you were facing that seemed utterly hopeless. I can think of several occasions in my life, most to do with my family, I think. I remember the occasion about 20 years ago when Josh, our eldest, we'd been out for the day to Stirling and he got very, very hot. And we came back and he was sitting on the settee in our lounge and he got hotter and hotter. And then suddenly had a fit. We scooped him up, we ran the bath water cold and put him in the bath. We called 999, the ambulance crew arrived and we went off to the sick kids with sirens going and lights flashing. Now I discovered later that what Josh had experienced was something called a febrile convulsion. It's when the body gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And if you're under the age of about, I think it's six, seven, eight years of age, uh, you, you, your body can't cope with the extremes of temperature. And so it just shuts down. And I learned the next day at church when I told people here what had happened the day before, that apparently it's quite common. 60, 70% of children have febrile convulsions. And I had one question in my mind. Why did no one tell me? Because sitting in the back of that ambulance, with Josh being worked on by the paramedics, I thought he was dead. I thought he died. And as we went from Stockbridge across to Sick Kids, I thought, this is it. We kept on saying Josh's name, and there was no reply, no reply, no reply. And it wasn't until we got into the sick kids and were in a recovery room and I heard these immortal words, Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> that A, I knew he was still alive and B, I knew there was no brain damage. In the sick kids hospital they used to have, I think they might still have, in the recovery rooms, pictures of children's characters on the ceiling so that when the children are in the beds they can look up and see characters from books and television that they know. And Josh's, well Josh lived for Thomas the Tank Engine. And so therefore when he said the words Thomas the Tank Engine, I knew it was okay. But I will never forget that ambulance journey where I felt absolutely hopeless. I'll never forget the journey six years ago when I followed another ambulance. We were taking my mum from our family home to a hospice. 
My mum had been diagnosed with cancer just three or four months before. She was by now very ill, quite frail. And I remember driving from Nutsford to Macclesfield, journey of about half an hour, feeling utterly hopeless. We all knew, you see, that my mum was not going to be making the return trip. We knew that it was a one-way journey. We were taking her in on the Friday morning, and Tuesday afternoon, she died. It might not be as severe, it might be worse for you. The situation that you pictured, where there was that sense in just in the pit of your stomach, this is hopeless. This is hopeless. And hope is a funny thing. It was the thing, really, the word, if you like, that became associated with Barack Obama when he began his campaign to become President of the United States. Um, just seems such a long time ago that Obama was President of the United States. But he wrote a book, The Audacity of Hope, and he wrote these words to describe hope. Hope, he said, is not blind optimism. It's not ignoring the enormity of the task ahead or the roadblocks that stand in our path. It's not sitting on the sidelines or shrinking from a fight. Hope is that thing inside us, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that something better awaits us if we have the courage to reach for it, work for it, and fight for it. Hope is that thing inside us, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that something better awaits us. And when you think about it, hope is quite an elusive quality. And it surfaces often at strange times. So, for example, already Friday afternoon, England football supporters, the draw for the World Cup was made and hope resurfaced. Despite being knocked out by Iceland two years ago, hope resurfaced. Maybe this time, maybe this time, 50, 60 years of hurt will be put to bed. And Scottish football supporters across the land said, I know. <laughs> we saw and felt hope last Saturday afternoon at Murrayfield when Scotland played perhaps the best game of rugby I have ever had the privilege to watch them play. And hope surfaced. And again and again, people all around Murrayfield, you could sense them almost in a state of shock at the end of the game that we'd scored so many tries against Australia and had played so well. But people were starting to believe maybe, maybe, maybe this could be the year. As a Scotland rugby fan said to me last weekend, it's not the despair that kills you. It's the hope. <laughs> the hope that this year, this year could be the year. Although it's not as bad as the Irish rugby team where it said that things may get desperate but never serious. <laughs> but maybe hope is required for something a bit more serious. Maybe hope for a child to come back to faith. Maybe hope for a positive health diagnosis. Hope for a child or a partner for reconciliation. Maybe on the world stage for world peace. Maybe you're unemployed and you're hoping for a job. Maybe you're homeless and hoping for a home. And hope is a funny thing. Hope in the ancient world wasn't a virtue. 
It was seen as this temporary illusion in Greek and Roman thought. And yet, according to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, hope is one of the three great things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Faith, hope, and love. When everything else is gone, those three things, Paul says, remain. Faith, hope, and love. And hope occurs again and again in the Bible, 126 times, apparently. God is described again and again as the God of hope. But the Christian hope isn't blind optimism, ignoring the facts of pain or suffering. But it's the hope of a future glory and a redeemed and different present, based in the character of God himself. Elsewhere, Paul describes a sort of a dynamic involving hope in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says there is suffering that then produces perseverance, that then produces character, and that produces hope. Suffering, Paul says, produces perseverance, And that perseverance produces character. And that character produces hope. And there's that paradox in the reality of most Christians that I know and many that I've talked to over the years that often, paradoxically, one of the times that people feel closest to God is when they're going through a time of pain and suffering. Not always, but often people will say, God felt so close in a doctor's waiting room, in a hospital emergency room, by the bedside of somebody who was dying. God felt so close. Suffering produces perseverance, produces character, and that character produces hope. And hope is there at the heart of Advent. The reminder that as the days get darker and shorter, the nights get longer and colder, we approach the time again to remember that there is hope in the despair and light in the darkness, that no matter how bleak things may get, there is still hope. And every year we light these Advent candles. And for Libby and I, this is a sort of annual tightrope of death. When will the Advent wreath burst into flames. How low would the candle have to go before the whole thing is one large conflagration? How many children will have to be rescued from putting their fingers in burning wreaths? And week by week, we sit on the front row thinking, it's looking a bit dodgy, removing more and more of the foliage from the Advent wreath. And this candle, and Fiona has done a fantastic job this year, she's gone for really thick, Candles. Apparently they have 70 hours of burning capacity each, so I think we'll be okay. But it's quite an apt symbol for hope. Because almost week by week, almost minute by minute in our services, because of the drafts that blow across from the sound cupboard, this is on the verge of going out every minute. And yet one small candle flame flickers. Despite all that's going on around it, it still is there. 
No matter how low the candle gets, how dangerous the Advent wreath becomes, the candle is still there. And it's symbolic, emblematic of hope. That no matter how bleak things may appear, there is still hope. Things look bleak for the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 40. They were in exile in Babylon, hundreds of miles from home, perhaps tempted to believe that God had forgotten them. They didn't matter to God anymore. They had no temple, no priests. The belief system that they'd created that said life, the world, even God revolved around them, that belief system just lay in pieces because they'd been deported from Israel to Babylon, thousands of them, deported and living as refugees. The prophecy prophecy in Isaiah chapter 39, the chapter before, had come true. There King Hezekiah was told by Isaiah, the time will surely come when everything in your palace, all your predecessors have stored up until this day, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left. And that's what happened. The people of Israel were removed, they were taken, they were put in exile hundreds of miles from Israel. And there they were. Apparently there's someone's phone going over here. I'll just leave it to ring. Is it yours? It stopped. Would have been quite cool to answer it, wouldn't you? (laughs) Sorry, I'm in the middle of a talk now, but hey, that's all right. Um, When things seemed darkest, when things couldn't get any bleaker, that's when Isaiah 40 comes. It's why some commentators think this is a different Isaiah. First Isaiah finishes at chapter 39, and then the tone changes completely from chapter 40 onwards. So people will speak of a second or even a third Isaiah. They can't believe that it's the same Isaiah that is writing these words, that has promoted and pronounced these words of judgment at the end of chapter 39 to suddenly these words of hope in chapter 40. Firstly, we have a word to the heart. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God is saying, enough is enough. You've been in exile for 70 years. You've been removed from your home for 70 years. Israel, you need to know it's done. It's paid for. It's completed. It's a word that's personal. It's a word that's gentle. It's a word that's kind. Comfort, comfort my people, God says through the prophet Isaiah. And secondly, it's a word that shows God in action, verses 3 to 5. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. You see, what's pictured is a royal visit. And in Isaiah's time, when it was announced that the king was visiting your town or your village, that was fantastic news. Because if the king was going to come to your town or your village, this was announced probably about a year in advance. And what would happen is that for the next 12 months, the whole of the infrastructure of your town and the area around your town would be improved. A new road literally would be built for the king to come to your town. 
all the potholes would be filled in. It's a bit like Edinburgh in March. You know, just before the end of the financial year, ping, all these roadworks suddenly appear. And Edinburgh's sort of roads become like a chicane system as you navigate your way around different roadworks. What's happening is before the end of the financial year, they're spending their money and they're filling in all the potholes. This is what is happening in Isaiah 40. But it's not just the roads of Edinburgh, if you like, that are being filled in. What Isaiah is picturing is creation itself being repaired. And a road that was bumpy is suddenly made smooth. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's like the M8 being built in the Gobi or Sahara Desert. It's like the M1 being built in the Alps or the Pyrenees. Mountains are brought low. Valleys are made level. Everything that goes up and down is now being smoothed out and a straight highway is made for the king to come. It's a bit apparently that the queen thinks that everywhere smells of fresh paint because everything is, is painted before she visits. This is what it was like. When the king came to visit, everything changed for you and the infrastructure where you lived. And that is what Isaiah is saying. The king is coming. The king is coming. Make straight a highway in the desert for God. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make the valleys, may they rise up. Make the hills, may they be level. May the rugged places be made flat. Because God is coming. The king is coming. God is coming. The king is coming. And thirdly, it's a word that can be trusted, verses 6 to 8. And the comparison is with mortal life, which is fragile and short. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The grass withers, flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Isaiah is saying you can trust God. He can be relied upon. He is going to come. We're mortal. We live, then we die. We're like flowers. You just, whoosh, we're gone. But God can be trusted. And where God can be trusted, when he fulfills his word, then there is hope. It's one of the great contrasts. Those often read those words at funeral services. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And there's a, for me, there's a huge contrast between a Christian funeral service and a secular funeral service. I don't know if you've ever been to a secular funeral service. There's one phrase that I always hear after a secular funeral service, no matter how well it's, it's been conducted, and some of the secular celebrants do a really good funeral. They do a much better funeral than many clergy, if we're honest. But there's a phrase that's used again and again and again, and the phrase is this, where was the hope? Where was the hope? Kathy's grandparents all are, died, are dead now, and I was asked to do the funeral for firstly on her mum's side and I did the funerals for those two because they were both Christians and I, I did their services a couple of years later grandparents on her father's side died now her dad and her grandparents on her father's side are committed atheists 
They make Dawkins look devout. They were committed atheists. Kathy's dad rang up and said, Dave, um, I know you did the other two funeral services. We'd, we'd like you to take the funeral service for my dad. Would you be willing to do that? I said, Steve, it would be an honour and a privilege to take that funeral service. He said, there's only one thing. Can you not mention God? And I had, there was a sort of long silence on the phone and I said, Steve, for your integrity and my integrity, it's probably going to be better if you find somebody else to conduct the service. He said, I respect that. And so he did, and he found a secular celebrant who conducted the funeral service, and the person did it really, really well. But in the pub, afterwards, people kept on coming up to me, and I don't think it was just because I'm the family vicar. And the phrase that was used again and again and again and again was, where's the hope? Where's the hope? Where's the hope? Because without the Christian hope of the resurrection, there is no hope in the face of death. And that's what Isaiah is saying. God can be trusted. The royal visit is imminent. The king is coming. Trust his word and share in that hope. And finally, Isaiah says, it's a word of love and power. He will come with a mighty arm and he will come as a shepherd to tend his flock, to gather the lambs in his arms. And there's that picture. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. What does God's mighty arm stand for? God's mighty arm, elsewhere it's referred to as God bearing his holy arm. And what it literally means is that God bears his holy arm. He rolls his sleeve up. And he does something about it. He doesn't just have platitudes or words that he gives. But God rolls his sleeves up. He bears his arm, his holy arm, his mighty arm. And he does something. So what Isaiah is saying is, God is coming. The king is coming. Your sin has been paid for. The darkness is going to come to an end. God has bared his holy arm. He's going to bear his mighty arm. But when he comes like a warrior to bear his holy arm, when he rolls up his sleeve to do something, he will come with the kindness and the tenderness of a shepherd. And he will lead his flock. He will carry the lambs in his arms. Because he loves you. So your suffering has come to an end. The king is coming. His word can be relied upon. And he will come with power, but he will also come with tenderness and gentleness. And it's no wonder that John the Baptist would pick up these things and would use these words from Isaiah 40 to say, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths for our God. The King is coming. The King is coming. And maybe this morning, there are those of us in this place, and you are waiting, and you are hoping, and you've been waiting for years for something. You've been hoping for years for something. 
And you're on the point, if you're honest this morning, of almost giving up. That thing that you've prayed for, that relationship that you've prayed for, that job that you've prayed for, that situation that looks completely hopeless, you're on the point of just giving up. And God says to you this morning, on this Advent Sunday, I'm coming. I'm coming. The darkness will not last forever. The light is coming. And I'll prove it because I will come and I will do something in your life. And it's in the waiting that God produces our perseverance, that produces our character, which then produces hope. So maybe this morning you've been waiting for something. And God's word to you today is keep trusting. Keep waiting. Remember that song that we started off with? It's as we wait upon the Lord that God renews our strength. As we wait upon the Lord, God renews our strength. And waiting upon the Lord is simply saying, God, I trust you. I don't understand. I don't have all the answers. I don't have perhaps any of the answers. But I'm willing to trust you. And as I wait, to ask you to strengthen me as I wait upon you. So are we willing to wait? And are we willing to trust And are we willing, hope against hope, to still believe and to still hope?